Thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode of Motley Fool Money. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com fool. And thanks to Bombfell for supporting this episode. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Matt Argersinger, and from Total Income, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best-selling author Derek Thompson is our guest, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with some retail earnings. Fourth quarter profits for Costco came in higher than expected. Overall sales look pretty good too, Ron, but their profit margins seem to be going in the wrong direction. Don't hit me with details. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I like this report, but it is within the context of what's going on in the retail and grocery business. But specific to this report, um, you can't complain with 5.8% comp store sales, uh, 16% revenue growth, e-commerce grew 21%. Um, these are all solid numbers. Um, their renewal rates, which are so important to their business model, because again, a vast majority of their profits come from this membership fee that... Um, um, people pay, which actually they just hiked. That's a nice lever they can pull to to kind of juice profits. That was down slightly, but they still have a renewal rate of around eighty, a little higher than eighty-seven percent. Pretty strong, but as you as you know, gross margins took a little hit, and that's because of the environment we're living in. They had to be kind of competitive on prices um, to kind of get in there and not have Amazon and, and Whole Foods and the Walmart take over the world, um, and that shows up in profits. I'm I'm surprised that the stock is down yeah. as much as it is on Friday, and I just wonder, given the report they had, which was which I thought was pretty good, and I know there's focus on these on these lower margins, but it just seems to me that the perception about Costco has changed since the Amazon Whole Foods. It, it uh, seems tie-up. stale, doesn't it? It seems kind of like not the new thing anymore. It's, well, I think I just think investors now are really questioning whether or not they will be able to pull the lever of higher membership fees down the road, because what am I ultimately getting? For those member fees, if I can now get so much more at Amazon, and so even if Costco continues to come out and do well uh, at a 27, 26 PE multiple, yep. I just don't think investors are going to be all that excited about it anymore. Right now, they are moving, trying to move into the age of Amazon. They just announced uh, two online initiatives: Costco Grocery, which you can uh, get 500 non-perishable food and sundry items delivered to your house in two days or less. Free delivery if the order is over $75. And they're also partnering with a delivery startup called Instacart for same-day delivery of about 1,700 items. Um, so they're trying to get in there and get their, their piece of the pie here. I think we have to wait and see how successful that is. I would think, given their membership base, hitting that, that free shipping uh, Point of just seventy five dollars. I would think that would be easy, just because yeah, no, like a, you know, a the, case of Twizzlers is seventy five bucks. <laughs> Shares of Netflix hit a new all time high this week after the company announced it is raising the price of some of its monthly plans. The standard plan, which is Netflix's most popular plan, will increase from ten dollars a month to eleven dollars a month. Maddie, I'm out. It kind of feels like they could have gone. Up more than a buck, and people would have happily paid. I know, and it's it's interesting because when they last did this in 2015, 
it did affect new uh, subscriber growth for a little while. But I think even in a stretch of two years, we're in a, Netflix is at a different point now. It's got so much more content. There's so much more to the platform. And by the way, great timing with Stranger Things Season 2 coming out uh, later this month. You, so, think, you think this was intentional? I, I think that's a little <laughs> bit intentional. So, I mean, a dollar it, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but if you think about it, if you, if you apply that to Netflix's roughly 50 million paying U.S. subscribers who are you know, most often paying that, that $10 a month, that's an extra $600 million, you know. That's not free money, but I mean it's just money that they didn't have before, and they're going to need that because they're going to spend. They're planning to spend about six billion to seven billion dollars next year on licensing and creating new content. So it's. I think it's the right move. I think it's the right time to do it, and I think this, the fact that the stock is almost two hundred dollars a share is, a, is, you know, investors realize that Netflix can do that and not lose subscribers by doing it. And that's the point to what you just said about Costco. We, Netflix seems to right now have that pricing power, and Costco. Um, not as not as confident in that because the the value proposition might not be as compelling um, as it is with Netflix. Right. Well, if you are just keeping it within the streaming industry, if you are HBO, if you are Amazon, which is uh, given the amount of streaming that they do, if you're Hulu, you're kind of rooting for this in a way, aren't you? You're you want Netflix to succeed and not lose subscribers because if Netflix can charge a little bit more, then maybe that means you can charge a little bit. No, more. I think it, yeah, this is demonstrating the power of sort of the the anti bundle, right? It's just hey, how how much are, are users willing to pay for these apps? Netflix, of course, is the biggest, most popular, most well known. They can, they can raise prices. We probably can too. Third quarter profits for Pepsi came in higher than expected despite weak beverage sales in the United States. Ron, Pepsi trying to push healthier drink options in the U.S., and people just aren't buying. <laughs> they're on what's called a multi-year journey, I read somewhere, to move people to healthier products. And they're not giving up on it, actually. They blamed this quarter's weakness on declining store traffic, a colder summer, which I guess somehow decreases demand for Gatorade. I guess that makes wait sense. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm that's, sorry. That's Pepsi what, that's played what, the weather card? They, they, a little colder summer than anticipated. Um, but they, they did admit um, that they directed too much of their media spending and shelf space to new lower calorie, much smaller brands. And that hurt Pepsi and Mountain Dew, the bread and butter um, that has been the bread and butter for so long. And they're making some changes there. They're reallocating chef's shelf space. The, um, they're, they're reallocating their marketing spend back to those, those, those brands. Um, but you know they did beat expectations, but it was mostly because of some cost cutting and some efficiencies that that they were able to kind of wring um, some additional profits out there. Frito Lay was fine, grew three percent. Uh, Quaker Foods up one percent. International actually uh, remains pretty strong. They generate forty percent of their sales overseas. I'm glad you mentioned Frito Lay because it was yet another quarter just for the snack business of Pepsi that was strong enough. That it's just one more brick in the wall for people who looked at Pepsi because for years the debate was, gosh, they just got to split this off. They just got to focus on beverages. They got to sell off the Frito Lay. Um, and the CEO at the time was like, no, we're keeping the snack business. And this is another quarter where it's it's really carrying the weight. Agreed, and literally carrying the, the weight. <laughs> <laughs> Smart food, Doritos, all good stuff. You'll keep hearing that debate, though, um, depending on where really? the stock price so? is. Every now and then, some some investment banker will come up with a bright idea to to break it up. Tough week for Shopify. Citroen Research came out with a short report on Shopify, saying the Canadian e-commerce company is quote a business dirtier than Herbalife, mm. and shares of Shopify down sixteen percent this week. 
Maddie, we were talking right before we started taping. I get that Citron is in the business of shorting, and they're coming out strong. That is that seems over the top. It seems like you can raise questions about Shopify's business without because when I hear something like that, dirtier than Herbalife, that is really raising the bar and raising expectations for just how much of a scam Shopify may or may not be. Yeah, this is Citron's bent. This is what Andrew Left does. He comes out with with fairly sensational arguments when he's going after companies, and and this is no exception with Shopify. He probably took it to a whole new level here. Unfortunately, I just can't, I'm not going to speak to those allegations. Whether or not you know Shopify is this pseudo pyramid scheme that's you know offering get rich schemes, whether the FTC needs to get involved. I, what I can say is we looked at Shopify and Million Dollar Portfolio about a year ago. We were concerned about the lack of profitability, lack of real competitive advantages, mainly switching costs. You know, limited information they give about customer churn and retention and things like that. And then the valuation. When we looked at the valuation about a year ago, it was 13 times sales. Growing like crazy, and, and you know, nice relationship with Amazon, all that. Before this, uh, even before the the Citron report came out, it was trading for about twenty times sales. And so, <laughs> you know, I, it's not a sounds st- compelling, right? Well, it's not a stretch here. I mean, he, he, Andrew Left and Citron could be right on the fact that maybe the stock just drops because it was overvalued, and he can end up looking like a genius by doing that. But I would just say, going in, oh, very highly valued. Lots of questions about the business and the model. We were concerned. I'm not surprised he is. I don't believe a lot of the sensational stuff that he's saying. Yeah, shorting based on valuation gets you in a disaster area pretty quick, more often than not. You've got to come up with something salacious, you know, using words like pyramid scheme and, and some kind of fraud um, to make it a successful short investment. Otherwise, it's it's very difficult. And, you know, and playing the Herbalife card makes me think that Carl Icahn needs to get involved here <laughs> by a huge position in Shopify and just squeeze the heck out of all the shorts. <laughs> you, you want to make it complete and just have Bill Ackman get in? Yeah, just one on. everybody. Let's, let's get the trifecta. Ron, back in your hedge fund days, did you ever go negative like that? Did you ever, ever try and short a company and just get a little bit Rough around the boards. Not from a short perspective. Our negativity was from an activist perspective, saying you know changes needed to be made, board members needed to be changed, uh, divisions needed to be divested, but never on the short side. I'm proud of you. Thanks. (laughs) Coming up, surprising news out of Detroit and good news from the other side of the glass. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Before we get back to the news, got to say thanks to Audible for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. Audible makes traffic an escape you look forward to in your car. You can access an unbeatable selection of bestsellers, mysteries, thrillers, and motivation. Transform your commute. Ride with Audible. And for our dozens of listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, good news. Audible has it. Just go to audible.com fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a title free and start listening. It is that easy. Some of the authors that we've had over the years on Motley Fool Money, people like Nate Silver, Charles Duhigg, you can get their books on Audible. Uh, Personally, me, I like to go a little bit lighter. Steve Martin, Bob Odenkirk, some of the stuff that those guys have done. Again, it's just a little bit lighter for me. That's how I go. But you can get anything you want. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash fool. That's audible.com. Slash fool. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argusinger and Ron Gross. Yum China is the parent company of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut in China. Same store sales in the third quarter up 6%. That is more than double 
Ron, what the analysts were expecting. Not too shabby. You know, Yum has not always had it easy in China. There, there have been, there have been missteps along the were way. There, were there, there been, some poultry issues <laughs> that, we, there, that we may or may not have covered on this show? Um, but this is actually a, a, a pretty strong report. Seven um, percent improvement in KFC from a comp sales perspective. Even Pizza Hut, which actually is struggling over there, um, same store sales came in flat, which was significantly better than forecast. So we saw a ten percent increase in profits. And uh, you know, I think it took some people by surprise. Uh, they put in their first quarterly dividend. It's only been a separate company um, since late 2016. So they put in their first quarterly dividend, 10 cents a share. They expanded their buyback program to 550 million from 300 million, and announced that uh, a new CEO would be taken over on March first. Uh, That's a lot to throw out there at once. As you said, this is recently a spinoff. So the fact that they are coming out with the dividend. Uh, with the buyback program tells me that they are swimming in cash. They they have plenty of cash. Yeah, they still want to expand though. They you know they're they're targeting 500 to 600 new locations this year. Um so th- that does cost money, but they've got enough to get kind of do it all. Earlier this week General Motors announced it plans to go 100% electric. Currently GM has one extended range electric vehicle. The company plans to have at least 20 in their lineup by the year 2023. And Maddie, that's I don't know the the speed with which they're talking about ramping up over that time frame, combined with the fact that this is one of the big three. I, I don't know. I was I was pretty surprised by this announcement. I'm surprised too. This is a, this is a big deal because yeah, the big three you mentioned Ford, you know GM now and Chrysler. Even though I know Chrysler's owned by this Italian company, uh, but they've really been behind. I mean, they've let Tesla sort of have the limelight in the U.S. when it comes to all electric vehicles. And now GM's uh, you know taking the plunge. You mentioned 20 all electric vehicles by 2023. I don't know how they get that done, but they're going to get it done. And I think if you look at what Volvo's doing, uh, Volvo as of next year is going to stop building uh, internal combustion engines. BMW came out and said they're coming out with 12 new electric cars by 2025. Jaguar Land Rover of all companies said all its models after 2020 will be their electric or hybrid, which was is shocking. And so, and this makes sense. This is where the world's going, and not so much the U.S. But China has said we're moving away from traditional engines. Countries like Germany, India, uh, Holland, Norway saying we're going all non-electric by 2025 or 2030. And so, what's what's actually most surprising to me about this is who's sort of in denial about this. I mean, this seems real. This is happening. The, the world of cars is eventually essentially moving electric. But if you look at reports out of OPEC, Exxon Mobil, BP, a lot of the other oil majors are like, yeah, we think electric vehicles are going to be like 10% of the market by 2030. Which I just think is I, I don't know who's behind the curve, but someone's behind the curve here. I don't know if it's GM or these guys or not, but the world is definitely going electric. You know, and I think that somewhat the Tesla shareholders are a little bit in denial too, because Tesla is priced as if they are the winner, and there isn't a winner in this. It's a big industry with lots of manufacturers, and the the, the industry is all moving towards electric cars. And so I don't see how that valuation. And I'm a shareholder, actually, surprisingly, but I don't see how the valuation That's is supported. A great point. Well, and and the fact that uh, they've essentially at Tesla essentially had the playing field to themselves for a long time, and so people are willing to wait however many months it takes for their brand new Tesla to get to them. Um, GM can be accused of a lot of things. Um, inability to produce a lot of vehicles in a single <laughs> year is not on that list. So uh, again, it's a pretty audacious goal to go from one to 
more than 20 in just a few years, but I don't know. I feel like they can pull it off. Yeah, and I really like Ron's point. I mean, I think investors almost think of Tesla as the as Apple in the sense that the yeah. iPhone, they're the Model 3 or you know, the Model S, it's the iPhone of the auto market. It's going to control 60 or 70% of the market, which is just not true when it comes to uh, automakers. Darden Restaurants is the parent company of several chains, including Olive Garden and shares of Darden down 5% in the past few weeks. And gentlemen, you can draw a straight line from the day that our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, uh, went in for surgery to have his tonsils out. You can draw a straight line from that date to today and the drop. And I'm just saying... So, now that he's back, do we buy? I'm just saying, <laughs> on their next earnings report, when Darden Restaurants comes out and says, yeah, Olive Garden sales uh, this quarter, uh, a little lighter than we were hoping for, <laughs> Long-time listeners of this show are going to know it's because Steve Broido is out. But fortunately, he's back. He's back. Steve Bro- <laughs> <laughs> He's back behind the glass. Steve Broido. Listeners wrote in. They tweeted. They want to know, how did the surgery go? How is Steve feeling? How are you feeling? You look great. Well, thank you so much. I've created my own sound drop. This is just every time I talk, I'm going to come in under this. I'm feeling very well. The surgery went well. I'm feeling good, and I'm back in the game. So, yeah, I'm here. Here I am. And because we did talk about it previously on the show, what was the pain level like? Would you qualify it as the worst pain ever in your life? It was, unfortunately. Yeah, it was pretty Ooh. It was pretty rough at times. I will thank the narcotics industry for <laughs> Uh, what it's done. I mean, I, I, there's a huge amount of it. I mean, at some point, the opioid crisis is a real one in this country. But there is a there is a place for opioids in this country for people after surgery because it's quite a painful surgery. Last question, because this also came up on the show. Uh, what flavor of Insure was your personal favorite flavor? So there was a strawberry blast one that I liked more than I thought I would. Okay. Uh, it was uh, it was very bliss. Strawberry bliss, I believe. That's if a you're, good. If you're were browsing, they, are they chalky? Uh, no, I mean, at that point, I was sort of like, I think I need to eat something. I will drink this now. <laughs> All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. And Steve Breidel will hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Looking at Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, BIP. Um, they buy and operate infrastructure assets, utilities, energy, communications towers. They've really, over the years, proven their ability to acquire high-quality, undervalued properties. Uh, a recent $1 billion equity raise um, pulled the stock back a bit, giving investors to buy in at, at a somewhat better price. 4.1% dividend yield, putting lots of money to work, almost $3 billion in 2016. Uh, I think the future looks bright. It's a household name, Steve Roydo. <laughs> Brookfield Partners, got a question? The question is, if I meet someone in an elevator and I just say, hey, where do you work? Brookfield Partners. What do they say in five sentences or so, or three sentences? Because I, I heard what you said, but I don't know anything <laughs> about what you mean. We buy uh, utility companies and energies and pipelines and communications towers, and we make money yeah, on them. Print money. Matt Argusinger, what are you looking at this week? I'm going with Baidu, ticker B-I-D-U. I, we were just at a South Carolina member event for The Fool. I, I spoke with this, spoke about Baidu at one of the panels. Of course, the Google of China. But I actually like it because they also happen to own the YouTube of China, which is actually rapidly becoming the Netflix of China. And that's I-Chi-E, which is 150 million active users. There's a chance that Baidu spins off I-Chi-E next year into an IPO, but you can take advantage of that now by buying Baidu. I think it's a big growth engine for the business. Steve, question about Baidu? Is there ever a chance that a Baidu would merge with Google in some form and just there would be some giant universal global search engine? I don't think so, because I think the Chinese government would have something to say about that. But it's an interesting idea, Steve. 
two stocks, Steve. You got one you want to add to your watch list? I'm going Brookfield. Oh, wow. Shocking. We buy stuff and make print money. There's <laughs> <We laughs> nothing wrong good. with that. That's a business model. Don't mock it. You know what? They should make T-shirts that just say that and sell them <laughs> on their website. All right, Ryan Gross, Matt Argosinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. Matt mentioned the event we had in South Carolina. Up next, uh, my conversation with best-selling author Derek Thompson from our event in South Carolina on the science of popularity. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with the right cohorts. You'll be good. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. So, what makes something popular? Earlier this week, in front of a live audience, I talked with Derek Thompson, best-selling author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Let's start with just sort of how, how you got here. How, like, what, what was it about popularity that got you interested to the point where you thought, oh, I think I've got a book here? I think popularity is uh, inherently weird and inherently interesting, um, and that's a good intersection to write a book about because you sort of have to stay. You have to. It takes so many months to write it and so long to read it. Um, coming up with a subject that was both uh, that was both small. Why do things become popular and big? Why do things become popular? Was um, was was the challenge here? And for me, the the article that I wrote for the Atlantic that really taught me or showed me that this book would be possible and interesting was an article that I was writing about the TV industry. Um, and it was about Mad Men and AMC's strategy when it greenlit Mad Men. Um, typically, throughout television history, the role of a TV company is to array the largest number of contemporary viewers around the television at once. Big Bang Theory, Chuck Lorre comedies, you want the biggest possible audience. But the business model of cable television is such that a lot of cable companies make the, the, the most money not from advertising, but from what are called affiliate fees, from money that is essentially sent from the subscription, uh, the household subscription, straight to the television um, uh, companies. And so the goal of AMC wasn't to maximize audience, it was just to stay on the cable bundle. And the really clever strategy was what we need to do is we need to create a show that uh, elites on the East Coast love and will call up Time Warner Cable and complain very, very angrily if AMC is taken off of their cable bundle. We need to create something that is unmissable for a very small segment of the population. And that turned out to be Mad Men. And it was interesting to me the degree to which invisible forces of economics and business models that you can't see explain the content that you see. There is something perfectly... Um, uh, capitalistic and somewhat craven about like that story you just told because ironically it's about the advertising industry that's where the show is set and they are very mission focused and in this case the people at AMC are the same way that they're just like here's our one goal how do we create a show that does that yeah it's, it's I thought you were going to say it's ironic that a show about advertising was actually created to minimize advertising right. revenue um, which is all which is also pretty amazing well I, I was going to get to this at one point but l- why don't we just go there now since you've sort of touched on the the business of cable television and sort of you know because that's one of the things that you write about in the book is we are now at this point in the business of television where unbundling is becoming a real thing. But one of the things that you touch on is 
we may actually get to a tipping point where rebundling needs to happen. Yeah, I think there's two interesting tipping points that are worth looking at. The first is that obviously a lot of young people in particular have switched from the cable bundle, from pay TV, from linear programming to these sort of mini bundle internet only products like Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. Um, and eventually, I do think that there will be so many of these Netflix-style products. Disney is talking about creating its own Disney Flicks. If that's successful, Time Warner is going to try to create its own standalone product. If that's successful, 21st Century Fox is going to create its own product. Um, for those in the room who are investing um, or looking at Netflix, that's sort of a scary proposition. The idea that an incredibly exciting company in Netflix that doesn't make an enormous amount of profit is about to be joined in this market by the largest content and entertainment companies in the world trying to create perfect competitors. That's a little bit, I think, of a scary thought. But another interesting thought that I think is really worth thinking about is as an investor and as a sort of 30,000-foot observer of the advertising and content space is, all right, pay TV is a $40 billion ad market. Television is the biggest medium for advertising in the United States, $40 billion annually. But young people under 35 now watch half as much pay TV as they did just seven years ago. They are migrating in droves toward Netflix and Amazon and HBO Now. And what's one thing that they, all those products have in common, Netflix, Amazon, HBO Now? They're all advertising free. So you know, Madison Avenue is used to reaching its, eight, its 19 to, f you know, 48 uh, demographic um, or, you know, 20 to 49 demographic through television. But now that demographic is the single most likely to be leaving television. And where's the advertising going to go? Historically, it hasn't gone anywhere. Advertising has hovered between about 1.5 and 2% of GDP for the last, like, 80 years. It's completely metronomic. So where does the money go? Well, it goes where the eyeballs are going, and a lot of those eyeballs are going to, uh, in terms of ad-supporting mediums, uh, Facebook and Google. So in a very strange way, sorry to connect so many dots no. here, but hopefully there's a dot-connecting thing that's forming in your brains. Um, <laughs> Uh, that was my most articulate passage, I think, of the morning. Um, in a weird way, Facebook and Google could not have better designed a corporate assassin than Netflix. Because Netflix is, for young people, destroying the advertising business, destroying the advertising viewers, and pushing them toward the duopoly in mobile and digital advertising, which is Facebook and Google. So, so that, I think, is a, is a big idea that I'm looking at, that Netflix, the biggest winner of the Netflix disruption could be Facebook and Google. Let's come back to Facebook and Google, Google in a moment. Um, in terms of the potential, the, the real and coming direct competitors for Netflix, Disney, when you think about the content library that Disney has, and if we're just talking in terms of original content, yes, Netflix has original content, but it probably doesn't stack up all that well against all of Disney, all of Pixar, all of Marvel, all of Star Wars, all that exists right now and all that is in the pipeline. Um, and yet, as we were talking about earlier, um, it is not that Disney is dealing with a content challenge. They're dealing with a technology challenge. How big a leap is it going to be for not just Disney but 21st Century Fox, all of these other companies, Comcast as well. How big is that tech challenge for them? Because Netflix, just as a user interface, I mean, that's 
part of, I mean, if you just look at how popular Netflix become and how quickly it became popular, first it was DVDs by mail, which was so much more convenient than going to the blockbuster, and then came streaming, which is so much more convenient than going to your mailbox. Yeah, I think that when it comes for a lot of these really powerful content owners, like Disney, like Time Warner, like 20th First Century Fox, I think it's sort of, I think it's 2008 right now, which is to say that a dip is coming, everybody can see that a dip is coming, but it's not a perma-recession. It's not a permanent depression. This isn't going to be like post-Soviet Russia. Instead, it's going to be like... God, I hope not. Yeah, instead it's going to be you have a lot of really, really successful, incredibly talented, brilliant people at these companies managing the transition from cable television, probably the greatest business model in the history of the world. Just pause for a second. Think about, there's never been anything closer to a private sector tax regime than there has been with cable television. 90 plus percent of American households paying $100 to seven companies every single month. Like, that's what U.S. taxes are. Every year, about 100% of American households pay taxes to the U.S. government, and it supports a bundle of goods, including defense and Social Security. Like, that's basically what cable television was. It was a private sector tax system. That's, you'll never have a better business model than that. Um, uh, and that's going away, and it's going to be replaced by a much more competitive streaming-only system. Um, that transition is going to be rough. There's no way around it. It's going to be rough. They're not going to make money hand over fist the same way they did when ESPN, for example, in the early 2000s was probably the single most valuable brand in the world. Um, that's going away, but eventually they will build these tech distribution systems and then they'll be relatively equal on distribution and they'll win, I think, on content. Because as wonderful as Netflix is, I love Netflix, it's been, it's been investing in original content for five years, six years maybe. Um, Disney's been investing in original content for nine decades. Um, it just has more stuff, it has better stuff, and it's used its richness in order to make some really brilliant investments in Pixar, um, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, um, and Marvel. Uh, so I think that going forward, uh, I think Disney is, is a, a long play, um, but if you're looking to you know, make money in the next few years, I think I, I don't know what Disney's short-term outlook is going to look like. I think it's actually going to be very rocky. Coming up, more with Derek Thompson. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, real quick, I want to say thanks to Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. It's an easier way to get better clothes, and I am completely 100% in favor of that because I really, really don't like shopping for clothes. Bombfell does all the work for me to make it really easy. Here's how it works. You go to bombfell.com fool. You fill out a simple questionnaire, and then you are matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece of clothing for you. Your stylist will email you a preview of their selections, and then you've got 48 hours to make any changes, or even cancel altogether. That's one of the great things about Bombfell. You are in complete control. Then Bombfell ships you the selected clothes, and you get seven days to decide what you want to keep and what you want to send back. You only pay for what you keep, and you send the rest back, and it is free shipping both ways. That's it. Again, my experience with Bombfell has been amazing. Uh, I, I'm not, and you can ask anyone in my house, I'm not particularly easy to shop for. 
and my personal stylist nailed my clothing, nailed my items. Uh, really loved the stuff that was picked out for me. And we've got a special offer for our dozens of listeners. $25 off your first purchase. $25! Go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool and get $25 off your first purchase. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to my conversation in front of a live audience with best-selling author Derek Thompson. What role does luck play in all of this? Does it play any role at all? Because when I think about business, and I'll go back to Netflix, you know, Netflix, Reed Hastings, he's a tremendous leader, and Netflix is a great business. They did get lucky in the early days that whoever was running Blockbuster at the time was completely asleep at the switch, did not take the threat of Netflix seriously at all. And I think it was six years went by before Blockbuster decided, you know what, we're going to try this DVD by mail thing and and give it a shot. Um, So when you look out, whether it's content creation, distribution, does luck play a role? Absolutely. Um, It absolutely does. And one of the reasons why I think people... um, who read my book, I think some people read my book and were frustrated because I couldn't give them a perfect formula because I take so seriously this issue of luck. And you can't have a foolproof formula if luck is a huge part of this equation. So a quick quick story about luck. Um, In 1954, um, an artist named Bill Haley recorded a song called Rock Around the Clock. It was the B-side to a song called 16 Women and One Man about a hydrogen bomb exploding and the world being left with just 16 women and one man. And you can kind of guess uh, where that was headed. Um, This song... uh, completely flopped. Uh, it was not popular at all, even though Bill Haley was a relatively popular artist. It came out, people had a chance to listen to it, the label pushed it as hard as they could. It just had no uptake. No one wanted to hear this song. Um, one of the few thousand people who bought the vinyl record um, was a f- fifth grader named Peter Ford. And Peter Ford was the son of a Hollywood actor named Glenn Ford, who was in a movie called Blackboard Jungle. And um, one uh, day, uh, Richard Brooks, the director of this movie, visited the Ford's house in, Hol- in um, uh, I think it was Malibu, um, Beverly Hills, and uh, said, I need a jump jive tune to kick off uh, this movie. It's a movie about juvenile delinquency. It's a bit like um, Rebel Without a Cause. Um, and uh, I need, a, I need a, 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 a song to kick off this movie. Um, and Glenn, the father, says, I only like uh, Hawaiian folk music, so this is not going to work <laughs> out for you. My son, however, is really into like, this weird new loud music. Um, the son, Peter Ford, hands the director, Richard Brooks, a stack of vinyl. One of the vinyl records in that stack uh, had uh, the word Bill Haley on it. Um, and, and Rocker on the Clock ended up playing at the beginning of Blackboard Jungle, in the middle of Blackboard Jungle, and at the end of Blackboard Jungle in 1955. And it is only then, three weeks after the movie came out, the song became the number one song in the country, the first rock and roll song to ever hit number one on Billboard, and the second best-selling song in American history after White Christmas by Bing Crosby, which is cheating because people just buy that for Christmas. Um, So is Rock Around the Clock an intrinsic hit, right? If you are an investor in some marketplace of music hits, and it's 1954 and you hear Rock Around the Clock, is the smart move to bet on Rock Around the Clock or to bet against it? Both. In 1954, the song was a flop. In 1955, it was the biggest hit of the century. 
So yes, luck plays a role. Timing plays a role. No world in which the biggest hit of the century, in which that song's outcome rests on the thin little shoulders of a fifth-year-old, a fifth-grader boy named Peter Ford in 1955, you can only discuss that world through the lens of probabilities and likelihoods and not formulas and inevitabilities. Let's go back to Facebook because in its relatively young time, a short amount of time as a company, um, certainly when it went public and uh, it grew in popularity to the point where people's grandparents were getting on Facebook and there were plenty of smart people at the time saying, well, that's it. It's over now for Facebook because it's no longer the cool place for younger people. It's no longer the popular place. It has only continued to rise in popularity. When you look at Facebook today, uh, what do you see in terms of a company that is not only one of the biggest public companies in the world, it is one of the most popular stocks, it is one of the most popular businesses. Um, how is it able to maintain that popularity? Is that the biggest challenge they face? Or when I, when I look at Facebook, I see one of the most impressive companies in American history that is going through a very serious existential crisis at the moment that doesn't really understand what it is and what it's built. It knows that what it's built is valuable, but it doesn't know what it's capable of, and it doesn't yet understand how to talk about it. So the best way to understand Facebook briefly, to me, um, is as a piece of information infrastructure, the same way an, a national highway system is a piece of transportational infrastructure. Facebook owns practically no content. It owns the proverbial roads on which the content reaches consumers. It's done a magnificent job of stitching together this proverbial nation, which is actually international, this international polity. Um, and, but in doing so, it's not only created an incredible place for advertisers to reach people and people to reach people, but it hasn't understood that other equivalent with roads, which is that when a state builds roads, it also hires police officers to make sure the roads are safe and erect signs to make sure that cars don't hit each other and paint lines and do the decades of thinking required to build the, a safe and truly effective national highway system. And Facebook right now has become profitable before it's become self-aware in a weird way. Um, and what you're seeing right now with the fake news crisis from the 2016 election, another fake news crisis with yesterday's uh, Las Vegas shooting where it turned out that Facebook was heavily promoting, um, I believe it was either uh, right-wing American propaganda and or Russian propaganda toward um, in, its, uh, in its trending news section. Um, and is now buying advertisements uh, in Burma to, in newspapers to teach um, Burmese people how to read Facebook. 
So I joked today on Twitter, I was like, this is a grotesquely ironic version of Amazon getting back into brick and mortar, like Facebook buying advertising in print to teach print readers how to read uh, uh, Facebook. Um, so this, and, and, then, and then on top of that, you have sort of Mark Zuckerberg's like semi-political, semi-presidential um, tour around the country to like talk to farmers in Iowa about like who they are and how they live. Um, I think, I think you, you put this all together and you have an incredible, amazingly successful company um, at the crossroads of an existential crisis, not understanding exactly what it's built and how to control what it's built. Um, because Zuckerberg founded this company thinking um, that connecting the world would, would, would simultaneously serve a dual purpose. It would... Um, uh, be good for humankind as, as the connections between individuals have, have always been, according to his philosophy, and it would be insanely uh, profitable because connecting people tends to be profitable um, and tends to, to uh, grow um, GDP. Um, but I think he's now realizing that there's lots of people um, who uh, are not good and they, according to Facebook's algorithms, are just as valuable as the people who just want to talk um, to their uncle and aunt and share a CNN story. Um, so I think that, in, in conclusion, I would say that Facebook's biggest problem going forward is not economics, it's politics. Um, no company that has so quickly achieved what is essentially quasi-monopolistic power in its industry, no company like that wants to be on A1 of the New York Times and Washington Post every single time there's a national news story and it turns out that they've given enormous backing to some piece of fake news. Um, I don't think the Trump administration is gonna be the one uh, to regulate them, um, but you look at some of the people who want to be the next president of the United States that are Democrats and a lot of them um, are picking as their boogeyman, not elites, um, but big corporations. Um, and Google and Facebook are, are duly afraid of that future. Derek's book is Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. It is available everywhere. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our producer is Matt Greer. Our engineer is Steve Broido. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>